Welcome to the Alcove. Tonight, our guests are Rebecca and Mandy Wolf. Bienvenue dans l'Alcove. Ce soir, on reçoit Rebecca et Mandy Wolf. So House of Timber started, uh, basically, it was all around the idea of building a community around the things that we love. Um, and that began with surfing. That was a, a huge passion. And uh, September is hurricane season, so that's when we all drive down to the New England coast. Um, anytime there's a hurricane swell, and it's a five-hour drive, so we're fueled by coffee. Um, so yeah, it was surfing, and we used to make surfboards in here. That room in the back where the kitchen currently is used to be a shaping room, and we were shaping boards in there. Um, so it was coffee and surfing, and then it evolved into kind of its own its own thing as the brand grew, um, and then we added other elements of the things that we love, such as uh, good wine and good food and good beer um, and good people. So, uh, and now it's become its own thing, and we're really glad for what it is. Thank you. So in 2004, Mandy and Rebecca Wolf opened up Montreal's first create-your-own-salad bar in the back of a women's clothing store, as we heard. With no prior food, business, marketing, or advertising experience, these sisters played up their strengths. Mandy came up with an original menu, while Rebecca designed the interior of the restaurant. They crossed their fingers and opened their doors. Against all odds, it worked. Fast forward to 2019, Mandy's has seven locations in Montreal, with more on the way. They now count more than 400 on their team and are still growing. Mandy is creative food director and chef. Rebecca designs all locations and heads brand marketing. Ladies, what a treat to have you here with us tonight. Thank you very much and welcome to Alcove. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So in true Alcove tradition, we try to warm up our guests a little bit with a speed round of questions. So just answer the first thing that comes to mind. Don't think about it too much. And you can both give me your answers. So as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Pediatrician. Actress. <laughs> they know where they're going. <laughs> what is one thing you wish you were better at? Cooking. <laughs> Telling people what I really think. Interesting. Number one pet peeve about your sister? She's always gorgeous. <laughs> She's always so calm and wise. I don't know. There's not very much to say. The meal you eat the most when you're home? Stir fries. Breakfast. All sorts of breakfast. Is there a salad that you've never tried at Mandy's? No. No. Best hire you ever made? Ed. Ed and Kelly. Kelly. Right. Design aspect you love about the store that you wish more people would notice. I think people notice everything. It's all over Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. And you? That pe more people would notice. Yeah. Um, Something you put specific thought into that you kind of didn't ever get much feedback about and you wish you thought was really cool and you Maybe quotes noticed. throughout the store, yeah. whether it's in frames or that we've drawn on walls. We'll Weird make sure to quotes those. in the washrooms and things like that. Yeah. Okay, cool. 
harshest critic that you've heard to date about Manny's? That we're not environmentally conscious. That we're a privileged white girl place. <laughs> Very interesting. Best compliment that you've gotten to date about Mandy's? That it's apparent that we love what we do. I just think being acknowledged for its quality and the hard work that we put into it is always very much appreciated. I mean, I think this is also a testament yeah, to what you probably very hear moving, all the time. Moving, yeah, for sure. Uh, something that they didn't teach you while you were in school, but that you wish they had about taxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more about accounting in general. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, quality you have that makes you really good at your Attention to detail. Compassion. All right. Biggest sales day you've ever had at Mandy's, if you know. I don't know the exact figure, but it was around Grand Prix. We had just opened on Crescent, and it was one of those blazing summer days, and it was just nonstop. I remember our husbands came to meet us at the end of the day, and we were just, like, ragged, and we walked <laughs> home through the crowd of, you know, beer and boob tourists and we were just like, you know, get us to our bed and we, it was such a proud moment. It was like, you know, it felt amazing. That's great. If you hadn't been able to call it Mandy's because of copyright, what would you have called it? <laughs> uh, we love our last name and we thought it would be funny to do a play on that, like, and because we're in Quebec, maybe like, you know, Le Lou or something like, um, yeah, something to do with our last name, but with a linguistic appropriate take on it. Because you would have gotten heat if you had called it wolf. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. All points of sale combined, how many salads a day do you sell? That's a tough one. <laughs> There's hundreds in, in most locations okay. every day, so. So close to a thousand salads. Then. More, more, yeah, okay. definitely more. All right. Something you chose to do with Mandy's that you never thought you would. Create Welcome Collective. Start a charity. All right. We will talk about that later. That wasn't so bad. Are you guys doing that? <laughs> yep. Yes. Okay. Good. So let's start at the beginning. It wasn't an easy start. Uh, you came back from New York thinking. How on earth is it possible that this amazing concept of make your own salad doesn't exist here in Montreal? You conned your sister into joining you in this project, um, and you launched it as a counter in the back of your then boyfriend's store. Yeah. And aside from really supportive friends and family, it didn't really take off. It took you guys 10 years before you were able to make a profit. Yeah. What was that journey like? It's a lot of trying at your patience and at your will and just questioning the dream all the time. I mean, there's only so much that, you know, her and I believed in it so much and we would eat it every day and we did have this sort of small cult-like following of people that did really enjoy it. But at the end of the day, the, the livelihood wasn't there enough for, to support us. So it, it's a constant internal struggle of, of following the dream versus is this a viable plan for the future? It wasn't glamorous. It wasn't fun, but we had each other, and I think that that's a huge thing. When you're going into an entrepreneurial uh, adventure and you're alone, I think it can be very, it's very easy to doubt yourself because the voices can, you know, 
come in and, and you're not sure what you're doing, but you know, you'll have like a down day and then your partner will pick you up or vice versa. Um, in terms of our finances at the time, we were living, um, I, I think I had moved back in with my parents, so we were like roasting chicken in their kitchen and then driving it to the location. We were sharing a car. We got to eat for free. Um, <laughs> you know, there are perks of the job that helped sustain us. Uh, but every February, you know, when, uh, Montreal is such an extreme city in so many ways, especially the weather, and we'd see our bank accounts in the red and we'd be like, what are we doing? You know, we owe this money to this supplier and Revenue Quebec and all these things. And um, it, it was, it wasn't always easy, but we stuck to it and the spring and summer would erupt again with a new wave of people that hope. loved us and <laughs> hope was on the horizon and this is the year we'll make it. And we we also going. didn't have to pay rent because we were inside of my boyfriend's store. Thanks, Vince. So <laughs> I think if we would have had to actually deal with rent, I think it would have been a very different journey also. Because I think that's one of the biggest expenses if you're opening up retail. So that was a big help for us also. I don't know if we would have been able to do it without right. that. And there's, you're talking about cycles because when winter comes, no one wants to eat a salad. Were there any, was there any year where you just said, I don't think we'll be able to do this again? Yes, we had a mini pause. We After did. the first year. <laughs> we closed. <laughs> the first winter, yeah. We closed. Yeah. Um, and then I went, I went, I did a stint working in the fashion industry, um, during which time Mandy decided that she wanted to try it again on her own. She went in there, we asked Vince, and... Um, you were going to do it on your own? Yeah. She did it on her own for okay. a bit. Yeah. And I was going every day to eat a Mandy salad. That's why it's called Mandy's. <laughs> I would drive... Not my idea. <laughs> I would drive from TMR. I was working in my dad's um, fashion business, and I would drive from TMR, get on the Dakari, and I would go pick up a salad every day, and Mandy would make my salad, and I would tell everybody I was eating a Mandy salad. And that's really... Um, when I came back, <clears throat> and I convinced her that I wanted to do it with her, I said, there's only so many people in Montreal that are going to pay $400 retail for a designer top, but there are, um, you know, many, many people that want to eat healthy, and this is a, you know, a, a very realistic dream that could happen, and I think if we do it together, it could be amazing, and it needs to be called Mandy's, because you make the salads, and I want you to make my salad every day. But we didn't have this vision at the time. We were behind a linen curtain at the back of a store with no sign, so I said, sure. And I ask her right. every day if she wants to change the name to something else. <laughs> Very happy it's Mandy. So happy. Um, you believed in the product, first and foremost. You really thought, you know, it's just about the fact that people don't know we exist. If they yeah, knew exactly. about us, yeah. they would come and it would be successful. Yeah. Um, looking back now, do you think that there's something that you could have done differently to speed up that kind of fame of 10 years later? I think that in branding, when solid branding, things don't happen overnight. And when a brand does turn overnight, I find that there's sometimes something missing to it. So I think the fact that we put in those, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, those 10,000 hours, yeah. I think that that really contributed to where we are today. And I think it was all part of the journey. And I think it had to have happened like that personally. Um, I think it was important that we grew very, very organically and very slowly. So, you know, the foundation was quite strong once we did finally you know, open up our first storefront. We were ready. And all that time, too, was, and being inside Mimi and Coco allowed us this incubation period where we got to test certain, whether it was a recipe or a method of customer service that worked or didn't work. So we had all this time to sort of perfect the model without knowing that that's what we were doing. And then by the time we, you know, we hit it out of the park, we had a lot of things really nailed down in a, in a tribal knowledge kind of way. 
So you started this in 2004. You were kind of behind the scenes. You, you're saying it was an incubator period. You got yeah. to try things out. Your real coming out was when you opened the first storefront uh, on Sherbrooke, where you moved from the back of Mimi and Coco onto you know this new location, which I think was a cupcake shop yep. before. Um, your sales went up 300%, mm -hmm. which is insane. And before, you were catering exclusively almost to women because you were in a clothing store, and so no dudes were coming in to buy salads in the back. Yeah. Uh, they were so, intimidated, but yeah, yeah. For sure. And so this was a whole new world. You became, you know, you had kind of 50-50, uh, and all kinds of people were coming into, into yeah. your store for the salad. So this was your essentially your first experience with success. Um, what changed for you then when you realized, okay, this is real and it might actually work? I think looking at, I mean, it wasn't a very large space. For those of you that know, it was quite small, but at any given moment, looking at it, the line or the people that were in there and seeing that we didn't know anybody anymore. It wasn't our aunt and it wasn't our friend or friend. And it was, you know, there was actually like, you know. Legit Mandy's fans. Like a man wearing his <clears throat> STM uniform. Like he was a bus driver and he was waiting in line to order a man salad, funny enough. But things like that. And we're like, okay, you know, it's not it's just. It's going to be a viable business. Did you make any adjustments at that point thinking, okay, we're catering to a totally different crowd? Not huge, not really. We're always changing the menu. Maddie's always innovative and um, like every six months there's usually a menu change, but generally not really. The menu is pretty much. Yeah, some standards. Fast forward from Sherbrooke to Crescent, which was like the big, big win where you opened your biggest location with probably the most foot traffic. Um, and you said when you were preparing for that move, people were telling you you're going to have to change your menu because you can't just sell salads downtown. That's not going to work. Yeah. You chose to do it anyway based on, I guess, a gut feeling? A gut feeling. Concordia is right around the corner. We had a huge Marinopolis and CJEP following and high school students. So anyone that was staying in Montreal and going to university in Montreal was going to be very close to us on Crescent. And we, you know, above and beyond that, we, we really believe that it would work. We, um, we both actually got pregnant at the same time, the year before we opened Crescent, and it was either do we open while pregnant or do we give birth and then open? And we, we were lucky enough <laughs> to have a landlord sort of pause or freeze the location for us for six months. Oh, you waited? Yeah. The um, landlord waited for us. The landlord yeah. waited for us, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. But it was really, Crescent was the first time that we had to sort of let go in terms of micromanagement. And when people always ask us about an entrepreneurial journey, I think one mm -hmm. of the most important things that we can impart is that it's very hard to grow if you want to micromanage everything yourself. And I think we didn't realize at the time, but again, it was just circumstantial. The fact that we had three locations down, we physically couldn't be everywhere, it meant that we had to trust in training other people that were gonna deliver the same experience that Mandy and I had been personally giving for so long. So having kids at home that were little and just having three locations, we had to create a training program, we had to trust in giving our baby to employees that were going to hopefully you know, give that experience that we'd been giving. And I think that's still one of our biggest struggles today is HR. And um, you and every other entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. And just like, how do we make sure that the Maddie's experience is still present in the locations when her and I aren't there? So it's something we struggle with all the time. So there's two aspects to that. It's really obviously the quality control of the actual food, but mm -hmm. also the brand and, and how does that live? How big of a role does, does branding play in Mandy's? Because 
know, there's great salads at lots of places. Is it, you know, for you, is that what really makes the difference? The fact that you have this brand? For sure. And it's not just the aesthetics, it's the entire sensory experience. So we obsess over things like music and lighting and the vibe of our staff and all of all that combined. All the things combined. you don't notice when you go into the <laughs> Yeah, all, all of that combined is extremely important. And the aesthetic, obviously, and the packaging and the product itself, but yeah. How you feel when you go in. Yeah. What's that feeling that, you're, that you keep going back for? Sure, we hope that the food tastes great, but it's also, you know, how did that cashier interact with you? What was your experience like overall? So it's really like the epitome of cool, this whole kind of California vibe. Did you have a meeting and say, okay, what do we want the look and feel of Mandy's to be? We never did, and we never have. And we still don't really talk about it. It just happens. <laughs> is it like looking exactly like your house? <laughs> is it just your personal aesthetic? For, for like physical design? Yeah. Kind of. But it's really fun for me because with each new location, people always ask, like, do you intentionally make it different? Do you intentionally make it the same? And it's just the aesthetics always remain. There's a consistency throughout, but yeah. there's never a plan to make it different. It just it comes from my brain so that there's always a commonality, but it's... It's always a bit different. Like, we're imagining that there's a brand book somewhere with no, all the nine no, lines. No. I'm like, no, no, it's just... Between her two ears. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, you talked a little bit about this before, financial liberty. You had the flexibility of being, you know, in the back of the store that your boyfriend had. And I know you had mentioned that your father had helped you financially as well. For people that have these great big dreams that might not have that kind of flexibility... What advice would you give them when you really can't wait those 10 years before you start making money? We had a lot of great help with um, and from BDC, who's still one of our partners today. They've been fantastic. They're, they're the best. They're huge supporters of entrepreneurs in Quebec and Canada. And if anyone's looking for a financial assistance, they're not scary loan sharks. They'll really help you and support you, and they have different... Um, scary loan sharks. <laughs> They're legit, guys. They're, 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 they're for real. Yeah. Um, so, so that was something helpful. worth checking out. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Um, let's talk about entrepreneurship. You mentioned this before, letting go. The fact that you both got pregnant at the same time before opening your biggest location to me is insane. Um, how, how do you develop a training program when you don't have any training in HR? You don't know how to mobilize employees. Like, how do you do that? We hired for the first time when we opened Crescent. We consulted with a third-party consultant okay. that specialized in retail expansion for L'Oréal and Sephora. So she didn't even come from the food industry. But she came in and she sort of gave us an onboarding program that she had worked with. So that was very new for Mandy. We <laughs> never, you know, didn't know anything about onboarding. Um, and she sort of started this journey for us on what that looked like. And now training is a huge part of our company. We have um, specific salaried people just for training. We have you have very, an HR department. We have an yeah. HR department. We have uh, very intense training programs. We've yeah. had to come up with our mission statement and our values, which is hard to... We, it's will, we okay. will talk about right. that because it, it is super interesting. Um, you know, we had this conversation before tonight talking about female entrepreneurs and how it's such a cliche when, you know, people love to talk about women in business. And the question is always... And no offense, because it is obviously a question we want to know, but it's always, how do you manage like your life at home and your work? Which is a question that you'll never hear a man get asked, because there is no yeah. issue there. Um, so you guys mentioned something that was I found very interesting, is that women actually have these very unique capabilities that you know a lot of men don't have. 
and that we probably don't celebrate. Um, we don't we don't celebrate those enough. So, as a woman entrepreneur, what are some of the qualities that you feel you have been able to bring to the table? You mentioned empathy a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you would say that's included in there. I think so. I think that um, women are extraordinary multitaskers. I think we're able to have like 20 windows open up up there on the computer. Like also. in our yeah, <laughs> everywhere, and, um, and and sort of have a handle on all those things, and um, and sometimes not have a handle. <laughs> sometimes not, yeah. but you know that they're all open and they all need to be dealt with. Um, yeah. And I think that um, yes, we, go ahead. No, yeah, just I think sometimes making decisions to not to, I, I just think as a woman sometimes the decision happens more from a heart place. Yeah. Um, Especially dealing, we're in the business of people at the end of the day. So a lot of the decisions that we have to make every day have to do with, as Mandy mentioned, empathy and compassion. And, and we've sometimes to the detriment of the business, but I think that as women, there's a different understanding and, and connectedness with the staff that maybe, you know, maybe if it was a, a male-run company, the decisions would have been different over the years in terms of, you know, how maybe, we do things. Maybe not as patient, too. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Um, you guys actually tried to hire women once specifically and yes. got into a little bit of trouble. Yes, don't do that on Craigslist. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> they literally put up an ad saying we're looking for women in the women kitchen. Women in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah we, didn't, we wanted only women at work. We worked in very small, tight spaces. We just didn't want distractions. And it was just easier with women all the time. It can also be much more complicated. But yeah. Yeah. Generally, now it's like a pretty good even split. Uh, we can't talk about Mandy's without mentioning, obviously, that it is a family business, but I think like any partnership, you guys have made it work because you're so different. You have a um, very complementary skill set. And, uh, and I think that you've mentioned this more than once, that what drove you guys to continue together is that you had this shared vision. What was that vision at the beginning, and is it still the same today? I think the shared vision was to uh, allow for maybe not the, the same um, possibilities and, and locations as a Starbucks, let's say, but that good, healthy food in beautiful environments should be accessible and affordable to more people. And the fact that you can get, um, you could feed your family so much cheaper garbage food, um, why is that, you know, how can you afford that more than you can excellent food that's good for you, that tastes good? So we wanted to allow that for everybody, and to give somebody uh, a different customer experience. Uh, for a long, very long time, we were bringing salads out to cars, and people were texting us their orders, and we would go, Actually? yeah, we'd go above and beyond customer experience, and I think that that stood out. Can I still do that? We oh. want to bring that back, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Maddie spoke about it this morning. Yeah. yeah. Like where you're not finding parking, and you really want oh, that. Oh, yeah. Every West Mummy, that was our job for many years, was bringing up thousands of cars, double parked on the Victoria Village. Yeah, that's how it started. I think also that her and I have the same work ethic, if I can call it that, mm -hmm. or non-work ethic, where we have the same appreciation for work-life balance. Um, we always see eye to eye on that. I think maybe also just having children at the same time have put us in the same life circumstances. So everything is always, you know, we always had a very, you know, we would close the store at 3 p.m. for the first eight years because we wanted to enjoy our afternoons and we wouldn't go on the weekends because we wanted to enjoy our weekends and we always had a very clear, we were always on the same page in terms of what we wanted out of work and I think that that's important too in a partnership, like that you're both, under, the work-life balance has to be the same. 
But now that you're running a, a full-fledged, you know, 400-person business yes. with many locations. Now it doesn't turn off. It's very <laughs> Like 3 p.m. on afternoons, are you chilling at home or? No, but we have these sort of mom blackout periods <laughs> uh, in, in terms of, like, we're not going to be answering emails between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. That's a, that's a, that's a for us, sacred, it's a sacred like family time. Where weekends, we, we don't work. We've never worked yeah. on weekends. Okay. It was a rule that we had from the beginning. I mean, we're all checking emails, but we're not actively at work on yeah. weekends. You're not physically there, but nope. you're still keeping yeah. an eye on what's going on. Yeah, or if we'll get together with our families over the weekend, we'll try to not talk about work, because then it's just like, la 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 How know? often are you able to not talk about work? Um, we actually don't really talk about work when we're together out yeah. of work. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty great. Yeah. Um, you, you have obviously a very successful business and you were learning as you were going. Are there some methods, and I want like really concrete mm -hmm. advice, things that you've developed that have worked for you, whether it's in, you know, you talk about the training of your staff, but just managing that business. Are there things that you kind of did dry runs where like, okay, this really works well for me and, and we're gonna keep doing this. We're gonna standardize it for all of our, our business. Um, right now we're working on a loss and prevention plan in terms of food waste, which is, um, I don't know if anyone in here is in the food industry, but it's something that you really need to keep an eye on. Mm -hmm. um, not just, you know, staff maybe like putting avocados in their bags because they're making guacamole that night or, um, you Does know. Does that happen? Yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, doing proper inventory tracking, um, monitoring KPIs, key performance indicators, mm -hmm. knowing, you know, having a tight hold on your payroll and, you know, adjusting based on season and, you know, really knowing your market, knowing your demographic, knowing the weather trends and, you know. Your labor costs. Yeah. It's huge for us. Food costs. And just not being shy to, these are all things that Mandy and I learned. We didn't, you know, we didn't, neither of us have a business background from school um, or accounting, um, finances. So all of that was like learning along the way and just asking a million questions and having people on your team that you trust, that you're also not nervous or embarrassed to ask questions to as you're going through that learning process. I think it's just it's been kind of like getting our business degree in the last however many years, just learning as we go all the time. And in terms of HR, because so much of this is about human interaction and relationships. And because you, I mean, you're dealing with the public. We're but dealing with the deal public. We're dealing with a huge team. Um, when someone shows you who they are, like believe them. So if you see a red flag, um, and if you see that red flag come up again, cut the cord. So like all the negotiation I'm doing with myself, but that's not good. No. Yeah. Yeah. Cut the cord. Yeah. Okay. Good advice. Yeah. Values. Uh, there's this shift, obviously, that's happening with big companies, small companies. Everyone wants to put a lot of emphasis on company culture and how that's the most important thing now. And a big component of company culture is values. And so companies are building out, what, what, are, what is my purpose? What are my values? And you guys shared with me some very interesting values, which I will read. So family, wellness, growth, and good vibes. Tell us a bit what those mean to you guys and how do you actually implement them in your day-to-day? -day? So it's one of our biggest challenges was how do we get these values to come alive when Mandy and I are there? And it's still hard. We believe that it really comes from the leaders in the location. So for us, we run you know, restaurant retail. So having managers that are there that really embody and exemplify the values on a daily basis is everything. If your manager or leader doesn't do that for your team, it's a problem. But like, how do you embody good vibes? Um, 
we ask that you not check your problems at the door, but we have a very um, open environment for communication. We're there for, you know, whether it be mental well-being or physical well-being and just making sure that the teams always feel supported. I think, again, it comes from the leadership in the location, so making sure that they're creating an environment that feels safe and supportive and happy. Um, we have rallies every single day in our locations. It's a way to set the day, set the tone for the shift. Um, so the team captains or the manager leads a rally every morning with front and back, so kitchen and front, making sure that communication is open from the day before, that we're setting goals and intentions for the day. Um, it's hard. It's one of the hardest things because, you know, when Mandy and I walk in and we'll see a staff member that's not spring sunshine or is not tending to a, to a guest the way that we would, it, it's, it's our Or hard. on their phone and their backs turned to the customer. Yeah. And you must see that all the time. Yeah. I mean, you're dealing with very young, sometimes inexperienced. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You also talked to me about radical candor. So feedback is one of our um, values, mm -hmm. and uh, our, our prior HR director had introduced us to this concept of radical candor, which is giving feedback in a very honest, constructive way. So let's say you're finishing your shift, and you or someone's leaving, and they you like particularly how they handled the situation. Let's say a customer waited 20 minutes, and they gave them a cookie. So you you give them that praise, you give them that feedback, and cookie you get cookie always works. Cookie always works. <laughs> it's the best placator. Yeah. Um, but you, you're very specific in what that either good or needs improvement situation was. Not just like, hey, good job today, high five, and then you know your staff leaves like, I did something good, but I don't know what that was. Right. So, um, and sometimes it's difficult conversations that you're going to have too, and what an area of improvement could be. And, and coaching staff on how to talk directly to somebody. So if somebody comes to you with a problem, to never try to deal with it on the side and, and give advice. Always the best advice that we give is that you need to go directly to that person and address it with them respectfully and constructively. Right. No so, gossip, no drama. Yeah. That's, that's a problem for us, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Which it's just normal human nature. Yeah. But, it, you know, the more that we do it, the more people get comfortable. And we also really encourage that it happens upward. So, you know, we really try not to be a top-down company, and we want to encourage that if we have radical candor in the locations, that the staff can talk to their management, they can talk to us, they, they can give us feedback. Yeah. We hold things called town halls, um, where the manager will leave the location, and either Mandy and I or somebody from the head office will come in so that the team could give feedback about... Um, the manager so that we can improve on it. And then we'd go directly and tell them what it is and we work on a plan to make sure we're fixing it right away. Um, it's, in, it's Feedback is I'm like super stressed important. I'm not even an employee. Because <laughs> otherwise things fester and we know, you know, it's, that's one of the ways, yeah, town halls. All right. Um, you guys, I want to talk a little bit about authentic um, philanthropy, which is what I feel you guys have been doing. Um, you started helping newly arrived families here in Montreal, uh, whether they were refugees or, or families seeking you know, asylum. And it kind of snowballed. You helped them get set up here in the city. And more recently, you built something called the Welcome Collective. And uh, today, it is a full-blown charity. You have a warehouse where you store, I guess, furniture and things that can help yeah. uh, these newly arrived families. You have eight people on the board, and you dedicate one dollar from each salad sold, uh, salad of the month, mm -hmm. to this charity. And people told you, "Are you sure you want to do this?" <laughs> and you said, "Yes." yes. Mm -hmm. So, 
what is that story? How did that kind of get on your radar? It was a good friend of mine who was my university roommate started this pilot project in 2017. And it was called um, Les Accueils um, Réfugiés Montréal. And um, she had sent out an email to just all of her friends and contacts asking if anybody wanted to become uh, part of a welcome group. And I didn't know what that was, so we asked. And a welcome group is just any group of people, whether your coworkers, your friends, your family, um, will help to receive a new asylum-seeking family. So somebody that had just crossed the border, like walking through um, the States, but they were coming from all over, from, uh, from countries in life-threatening situations and uh, help them get set up with their basic essentials. They were coming in, staying at the YMCA shelter um, for a month, and then they get sort of doled out with a government check of $1,000, and some of these people were single moms, pregnant women. Um, and there's no follow-up. There's no follow-up. It's just, here's your 1000 bucks. bonne chance. Well, which is, which is Which is lovely and, and generous and as good as, you know, yeah. the government can do on, on a lot of fronts, but uh, it just... When we first met um, the original family that we were paired up with, we went to their apartment in Lachine, and um, it was a, a couple in their 30s and two girls ages five and eight. They were from Nigeria, and the mom had just given birth, so she had a one-week-old with her, and they were in an apartment with four chairs, like, and that's it. So there were no mattresses, no cribs. no pads. She had no blankets. It was November. It was November. They were from Nigeria, so they had no winter clothes. And it just tore us apart, and we um, we definitely lost our minds a little bit for a few months. <laughs> we you went on like a rampage yes. of like we're we gonna help every family, like literally down the street, and then we'd go into an apartment building, and like three heads would pop out because it was usually like um, a landlord would allocate apartments to more than one refugee claimant family, so that we would find clusters of families, and we would get on board with that, and. Um, we stopped working. We rented trucks. Our husbands were driving trucks. We were. Who was um, making the salads? Well, <laughs> our <know>. trusted employees <laughs> with good right. vibes. Right, exactly. <laughs> our mom was even upset. Like, what are you doing? You're not going to go to work anymore. What are you doing with all you know? Everybody that you're helping. We have to help the family. Yeah, we turned our our office into a warehouse depot, um, where the biggest change was that we went down to the YMCA. Once we had helped, I think maybe five families. We went down to the Y. We wanted to know where everybody was coming from. It was like a beginning of December night. And Maddie and I gave out our personal cell phones to probably about 20 families at the Y. Just And we guaranteed them we would get them beds. We would help them get beds when they moved into their apartments. We promised them that. And then so it turned that, into a bit of a, uh, like an immigration hotline on our phones. And we <laughs> Um, but it was, we asked those first families if we could n leverage social media, which was, we're still so grateful today, if they were okay with us putting up photos, because at that point we realized we were in over our heads and we didn't have access to get this many beds. Mm -hmm. And they said yes, and that's how everything changed, and the basements of all of our locations became depots for people bringing all this clothing and furniture. And um, that's how it started, really. We were, you know, with the Montreal community. And it was such a cool connection of communities because all these people had mattresses and clothing that they wanted to get rid of. And we had this huge network of people that were sleeping on the floor that, you know, desperately needed help. So. We were wearing flip-flops in December, so. Yeah. And this is still going, but now it's just under the name of... Welcome Collective, Collective, and it's very organized. We've got two vans. We have a 7,000-square-foot warehouse that has... Everything categorically, like, 
you know, baby boots and kids' winter clothing and mattresses and cribs and sofas. We move in sofas. eight to ten families a week that come out of the Y, and we deal with the most vulnerable. So whether it's like single moms, pregnant women, handicapped. Yeah, and we have some of our original, um, the original family that we met. That, uh, they actually did get their um, acceptance in Canada, and they're now working at our restaurants. The mom and the dad. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you have a lot of uh, clearly hands-on experience. What, as a community, are we not doing right? What can we do better to help them? I think there's such a lack, there's such a fear of the other and a lack of understanding and that, you know, these are family people. They want the same things that we want for our children and for our loved ones. We want, they want safety, they want security, they want, um, you know, education and health. And, you know, there's, there's just this, like, you know, roll up your window and don't look, and, you know, I just want to protect mine. And there's a quote that we love, like, when you have more than what you need, you build a longer table, not a higher fence. And, you know, I think that if people shifted their perspective a little bit and, and opened their mind to learn about different cultures and what they're coming from, I think that would just... I think it's also that a lot of people just don't know what's going on, and I don't yeah. know if it's the role of the government, or I said, like, I grew up not far from the, the Y, where there's 700 beds, like, just below Alexis Neon, of refugee claimants that come in that fill up and turn over every 30 days. And I, I grew up three blocks from there, and I had no, no idea. idea yeah. So I think it's just the awareness also. I think that once people do know, it's like a little trick we had where we'd want someone to adopt a family. <laughs> we're like, we're just going to give them the address. And then like the minute they go there, we know <laughs> when they open up the door and they see what's going on, there's no way. Like 100% of the time when that's happened, they've taken on the family. So What do you mean taken on the family? Well, so we... We'll provide the furniture through Welcome Collective, and okay. then we like pairing up that family with a welcome family. We call it a welcome family. So welcome it's a welcome group. group. Yeah. So providing things like cutlery and pillows and clothing and the smaller items. Things that you can put in your car to bring to them. Okay. So instead of them dropping those smaller items off at the warehouse and feeling good about it, which is still a lovely deed to do, if you go and introduce them, mm. it changes everything. Sure, Because you, feel... you feel like, and like the gratitude on both sides and this intense human spiritual experience and it's it's like none did it, other did it change you guys absolutely it's like the best experience that i've ever had yeah i mean to bring back connecting. yeah gratitude and this almost this i don't want to say like a, a kind of a duty as a mm -hmm. luck of the draw you know born in canada and you know, what, what did I do to deserve this life? And what did they do to deserve, you know what I mean? Like yeah. that, why, why not help? That's amazing. Um, we don't have a ton of time left, so I do want to touch on a couple of other things. Uh, we always love to talk about certain struggles that, you know, you may have had. One of the ones that, there's two things I'd like to hear you guys on. One is that at the beginning of this whole process, you did start a partnership with somebody and that did not work. And I feel like somebody's, <laughs> does anyone want to talk about this? <laughs> um, and from what I understood is that you had wanted to go into, into business with this person, you ended up sharing recipes, that person kept those recipes and just kind of ran with it and you had to start all <clears throat> over again. Yeah. How? <laughs> Talk about it. <laughs> how, how do you manage something like that and how do you make sure it doesn't happen again? 
everything is in writing now, and there's lots of contracts and NDAs signed. Another so, quick tip for everyone wanting to go into entrepreneurship. Friends, your best friends, your family, get it in writing. Get it signed. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a, um, a retailer that saw the success of our operation inside Mimi and Coco and mm -hmm. wanted to replicate the same thing up on uh, Jean Talon in 2008, seven? 2008, yeah. Mm. yeah. And, um, what a mystery. Yeah. <laughs> and um, she didn't want to sign anything with us. She said, well, let's see. Let's just see how it goes. Huh. And we were set up in her store, and um, we kept wanting to sign as things were rolling, and the, the, both of our businesses were getting busier. And then there was an accidental email. Well, maybe not accidental if you believe in the, you know, mm -hmm. there's no accidents. Of course not. Um, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to send that text to you. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But this really was an accident on, on her, her part, uh. where she had sent an email to who she thought was her assistant, but it ended up going to Rebecca. Um, Outlining how they were going to steal all the recipes. <laughs> <laughs> and to make sure you get the black book and the name of all their suppliers. And This is like a TV movie. I yeah. know. So we had um, boyfriends and our dad and uncles come in and like move out the whole operation overnight. And we were really? gone in the morning. Yeah. yeah. And we were so little like at the time in terms of finances and power. We, we, we couldn't legally go after her. It was just one of those like super sucky pills to swallow. And... I think she'd even sent out like a cease and desist on like character defamation because we were talking badly about her. But I mean, yeah. And she still has a thriving uh, salad, salad business. business today. <laughs> she's she's left all the retail behind and she just does yeah. salads now. I'm not gonna go there anymore. <laughs> uh, now that I know the truth. Well, just like karma, take care of itself. Yeah. Totally. Uh, well, whatever you want at life, and that's great. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I wanted to talk about was this food truck. When you guys were building up this idea of a food truck, you were super excited, and you were like, I can't wait to have this food truck, yeah. and then you got the food truck, and it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of terrible. It wasn't terrible at fun festivals, and things like Picnic Electronique and Oshiaga and C2 were all amazing, but the operations of running a food truck on a day-to-day, -day, for those of you know about food truck um, industry is that it's very much controlled in Montreal and there is like a food truck association that decides during the week where the truck could be so we could sometimes be in the middle of nowhere on a rainy day and you still have to open and operate and it was kind and of pay your staff and, pay and your staff get all the food prepped it was just logistically very difficult for us so unfortunately how long did we have it two, uh, two years? years yeah so it's for sale if anyone's yeah. looking for a nice <laughs> big parking food truck, truck. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll get another one and we'll paint it a different color. And but yeah, no if more the laws truck. had been different, would you have continued? Maybe. And you were able but to I park think, it wherever you want. I think that there's still this um, food truck like idea in most people's minds that it's like you're gonna go get like a six, seven dollar like grubby thing that you hold in your hand. You're like here's your twenty two dollar salad. <laughs> so for certain crowds, it just you know, yeah. and we tried doing half salads and. I don't know. It just we, culturally, we it wasn't a good fit. for a while, and that was the best. That was a winner. That was the winner. No, we wanted it for Oshiaga. Yeah. So if you if you do get a food truck, park it inside a mall yeah. while their food court is shut. That'll do great. Yeah. <laughs> great business for you. Um, I do want to talk about the book deal before we we close because that is yeah. a pretty incredible thing. So you've signed a deal to release two books, and you're working with uh, Meredith. 
Erickson. Yeah. Who wore, uh, wrote the book for Joe Beef. Yep. Right beside right, here. Right next door. Uh, which has been a huge success. Is this a passion project, or are you actually hoping to make it lucrative? Oh, it's totally a passion project. If, I mean, if there's, you know. You're not doing this to, like, skyrocket sales. No, no, no. Just a re really cool piece to have for our kids one day, and it's like a, it's a fun, almost business card to have also. Something that's physical, we, never, we don't have that anymore. So it's, um, and yeah. there's always a story to tell. You know, we've got our story and the, the why certain salads are named what they are. Um, you know, someone mentioned Reagan. You know, Reagan and Danielle were two employees of ours, and now Reagan Steinberg is the owner of Arthur's. Oh, that Reagan. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And they would eat the same salad every day. So we're like, you're getting your salad named after you. And that's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. So there's just little snippets in there that we find entertaining. And as yeah. you know, as a Montreal company, there's a lot of references to Montreal, and we love our city, and we're proud Montrealers. And, um, so you've yeah. obviously we're now at the point where you have a very successful business in Montreal. You've expanded to the South Shore, to Laval. What is the next step? We'd like to hop over the provincial lines. To and, Toronto? Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, okay, Toronto's your next step. Toronto's next. There's a lot of salad bars in Toronto. Yeah. What is it about Mandy's that's going to work? We always just don't, not that we don't pay attention to the competition, but we've always sort of just like gone along to the beat of our own drum. Mm -hmm. And um, weirdly enough, we have a large following from Toronto already that write to us all the time about coming to Toronto. When are you coming to Toronto? Yes. So we're kind of just going on that. that we feel like so there's this is not an idea. This that. is actually happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's going to happen. Yeah. That's amazing. Congratulations. Do you guys have any suggestions on where in Toronto? We're open to any suggestions. I'm just going to wait for this to happen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to do like Crescent. You'll wait to pop out at number three. Yeah. And then open up a store in Toronto. So. Yeah. And... Uh, I want to end off on something that's maybe a little bit more um, emotional. You, your father was a huge supporter of, uh, of you guys and your business, and you were saying that one of your biggest regrets is the fact that he wasn't able to see your first kind of street front location come to life. Um, what do you think that he would have given you as advice today on the next chapter? Um, he always said, uh, no risk, no reward. You have to go out on the limb to get the fruit. And he was a calculated but risky entrepreneur himself. And um, even in our early stage of starting it, he, he would often mention things like that to us. And I think he would continue in that vein in his advice for us. Take the risk. Yeah. Yeah, he always believed in whatever weird ideas we had. Um, and I think that that was a big force for us because I think we both revered him and respected him so much, especially in his business acumen. So I think Maybe the courage. Yeah. Whatever ideas we had, just run with it. That was the best advice that he would give us. And that's still what you're doing. Yeah. And he would be so happy that we're doing it together. <laughs> still that you didn't break up. <laughs> well, congratulations, you guys have accomplished so much. And I, I Thanks, think I can Jen. speak for everybody saying that we can't wait to see Thanks, Jen. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another Alcove, your favorite nomad microconference. Join us next time for another intimate Alcove talk in person or right here. For more information, follow us on alcovemoments.com. 
Merci d'avoir été des nôtres dans cette microconférence nomade Alcove. Joignez-vous à nous pour la prochaine conférence. Visitez alcovemoments.com pour tous les détails.